of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are doing Free Rider Friday. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Good. It's going good, Ron. It's a beautiful day here in Dallas. We've got baseball practice after the show. All is well with the world. And it's been 92 degrees here for the last few days. Global warming. Global warming. I think, but you know what? I think the grapes like this, so I'm kind of happy. Oh, so, <laughs> so, could, could so be in favor of climate change. Yep. All right. No. Yep. All right. Okay. So it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Better. Well, the drought was actually really good for the wine, but this is. Yeah. This, this may be interesting as well. We'll find out in what four years. <laughs> yeah, roughly maybe three. Some okay. some wineries. All right, Ed, I'm going to launch because I've got a stack here taller than me. Um, what are the what are two of the most welcome words in the English language? No cavities. Meeting canceled. Meeting, meeting okay. All right, meeting so, canceled. This is out of Bartleby in The Economist. <laughs> this is fantastic. You will love this. Workers can be, can be divided into two groups. FOMOs fear of missing out and jomos joy of missing out gotcha yeah yeah. and he says he was born under the sign of jomo <laughs> and he says you know if you're a jomo you you foresee the hassle involved the likely failure of the project and the weekend emails from all the fomos wanting to spend less time with their families then you are a certified jomo fomos are early adopters Jomos resent the video element of meetings, prevents them from checking their emails, playing solitaire while Ted drones on about the budget for 20 minutes. I mean, this <laughs> is hilarious. I tell you, I just love this guy. He's got a great oh, wit about man. him. Um, he's a FOMO seat. Breakfast meeting is a chance to start the day on a positive note. Jomos wonder why it's not being held during regular business hours. <laughs> um, he goes on to talk about networking events and business travel. And he says, and then I just love this. He said, yeah, it, it, it should seem obvious. Employers should look to hire FOMOs, right? Not their opposites. He said, but remember, you need a few, a few JOMOs around to actually do the work. If FOMOs are like dogs barking excitedly and chasing their own tails, JOMOs are more like feline, content to sit by the fire. <laughs> oh. Love it. Love I it. don't know about you, but I am definitely a Jomo. You don't really, you don't care. You're not like, uh, I, I need to need to know. I need that nugget of information. I, I need, I need to be involved in everything. It reminds me of the kids in high school government, you know, just the busybodies. Okay. So, so you said you're a Jomo? Oh no. Uh, yeah. Joy of missing out. Yeah. You don't, you don't care. You don't care. Yeah, about you. No, I don't care. You don't care. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, I, I, you know, it's one of those things that depends on the subject. Like there's some things I want to be on the inside on. Yeah, no, I get that. And on the topic I work on, yeah, I'm, 
maybe more of a FOMO, but even there, I'm getting more over the FOMO. It's like, yeah, okay, you guys deal with this. Whatever, whatever you want to do. Yeah, okay, good, you're love not, it, good you're one. Not listen to me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, man, I just don't even know where to start. I'm trying to see if I can if I can do a, a segue from from your, yours in, into something that I have, and I really don't think I can. Well, like, mine I, are completely like, uh, random, Ed. Trust me, completely random. We're bouncing. So here, interesting stat came across. There are 10 times more millionaires in the U.S. than there are minimum wage earners. I believe that. <laughs> right? Yep. 10 times more. Roughly in that, there are 11.8 million households, roughly 3% of the population, right, are considered. Now, this is net worth, not income. Right, so net worth of a million dollars or more. So when you consider the houses and all that stuff, sure. right? So roughly three percent of the U.S. population. There are one point eight million workers as of two thousand seventeen who earn the minimum wage. Oh. One point eight million, and uh, half of those, half of those one point eight, are teenagers. Teenagers, absolutely. And, I, and I'd like to make this point: and how many of them are in the $11.8 million households, right? A million households, right? Right. Earning a minimum wage job because their parents said, you got to get a job that they went to McDonald's or whatever, got the gig and it's their first job. And that's all it is. Yep. All right. So I'm, I'm, you know, we, we've beaten this one, one up, but I, I just thought that was really interesting. And, and here's the thing. I think that there's a lot of people who would love to invert that ratio. Mm. Mm. They would, they would just love to see it was the exact opposite that we had only 1.8 million people who had were millionaires and to see 11.8 million households on minimum wage. And then we'd all be, then there would be more equality. equality. Yeah. There would be more equality. Um, I, and I look, I, I know there's, there's, there's lots of things wrong with citing that as a statistics. They're not necessarily related in any way. I mean, but I, I just found it interesting that it's 10 times so I, I I really think we need to like move on about this whole fifteen dollar minimum wage thing, and the the more and more evidence in Seattle can, continues to pile on that the minimum wage has l- slowed the jo- the job increase. It has reduced number of hours that people ha- are are working, right? And in a lot of ways, has had the exact opposite effect of the people that it was very inte- that that it intended to help and. Yep. Like Thomas Sowell says, you can set the legal minimum wage anywhere you want. In the real world, the minimum wage is zero. Yep. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. So, well, uh, sort, sort of on that note, Ed, a little bit, um, by Alyssa Algren. Okay. From you probably saw this. Title is College Student. My generation is blind to the prosperity around us. Yeah. He says, I'm sitting in a small coffee shop, scrolling through my news feed. People are talking freely, working on their MacBooks. You know, cars go by outside. We live in the most privileged time in the most prosperous nation, and we've become completely blind to it. She goes on to say, and this, you talk about a stunning statistic. Our poverty line in the United States begins 31 times above the global average. <laughs> 31 31 times. times. She says, virtually no one in the United States is considered poor by global standards. 
yet we are unappreciative, unsatisfied, and ungrateful. And then she quotes Cortez, who says, AOC, Sandy, to us intimates. Mm. And she was talking to Newsweek, and she said, an entire generation, which is now becoming one of the largest electorates in America, came of age and never saw American prosperity. And Alyssa goes on to say, never saw American prosperity. She says, is quite literally the most entitled and factually illiterate thing I've ever heard in my 26 years on this earth. But I do think she wholeheartedly believes it. She goes on to say that, you know, people who say inequality is an existential crisis, even though this is not an indicator of prosperity, some of the poorest countries in the world have low income inequality. And that's true, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, she says, but why? And, and I, I love this. I, I think this is actually profound, the way she turned this over. She said, the answer is, my generation has only seen prosperity. We have no contrast. We didn't live in the Great Depression or live through two world wars or see the rise and fall of socialism and communism. We don't have a lack of prosperity problem. We have an entitlement problem and an ungratefulness problem, and it's spreading like the plague. Will we see the light or will we have to lose it all to realize that we have now, that what we have now is true prosperity? She's saying, you know, basically she's saying, well, like we're like fish in water and we, we don't appreciate the water. Yep. And that's true. And that's, you know, that's Jonah Goldberg's put, point in his book, um, Suicide of the West, that we need more gratitude. It's one of um, Deirdre's points. Oh, absolutely. Deirdre totally Kowalski. agree. Yeah. All right, so got one here. Uh, we d- we did a show what two or three months ago on the uh, uh, why can't I think of it? Uh, where where uh, we yeah uh, licensure licensure <laughs> licensure yes occupational licensure occupational licensure. You'd be happy to know that a millennial has joined us in our fight. A millennial has joined us in our fight. Uh, Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian. Saying lawyers uh, don't need licenses. That's right. Or does she, well, actually not quite. She said lawyers should not have to oh, go to law school. To, to law school. Right. And law and school. historically they have not, we've had Supreme court justices never went to law school. Uh, well, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, there, the lit, there's a litany, right? Andrew, there is. I yeah. mean, there's just a whole, whole bunch of them um, who never, who never went to law school, but, uh, but obviously ably served in the law. Well, so anyway, just as a little quick tip, Quick, quick one in there. I wanted to hit that we have Kim Kardashian on our side now, Ron. So we'll be happy, happy about that. It's going to have to make me rethink this, Ed. <laughs> I don't what, know. You know? <laughs> I don't know she about wants that. To to, she wants to become a lawyer and without going to law school. She thinks, and she thinks it's ridiculous. She, she hopes that more states would allow this alternative path. So. Cool. Okay. Look, I know we only got two minutes, so I'm going to give a quick shout out to my dad. Darren Tankerang, and I don't know if I'm saying that right. He's a 24-year-old black entrepreneur from England. He co-founded a company called Trim It. It's a barbershop on wheels that people can basically book like Uber. Ah, okay. So it'll come to you, and there's a great picture of his van. It's got a barbershop in it, you know, run by a generator, so it's got all the electrical supplies. This guy uh, grew up in Brixton, South London. His mother and father had dreams of him becoming a banker, lawyer, accountant, but he turned out to be dyslexic. So he said, I had to reassess my career plans. He, uh, in, he entered some enterprise competition and he won it with this idea 
of an app where people could, you know, book a barber like in a salon. But then he came up with the idea of the mobile barber shop. He used ten thousand dollars in the pri- ten thousand pounds in prize money to start this. He had some problems starting out. Bar- barbers unreliable and all that. But now he's got two vans in operation, or three three vans actually, and. Um, there's some obstacles, parking, <laughs> traffic, <laughs> London, said yeah. climate change. And, and, and I like, and my dad will like this, in the sentimental attachment to visiting traditional barbershops. Mm. But he says mobile barbershops will be a thing. Trust me. He's probably got a point. He's absolutely right. For those of you who don't know, Ron, Ron's dad was a barber, so that's why that hence the shout out shout out for for him. But and he, I very much would be in favor of this innovation, I'm sure. So the question is: Is do are barbers licensed in the UK, and do you have to have a barber's license in order to own a barber mobile barber shop? You know, even if you're hiring other people, you know, it's like you know, like yeah. CPAs, you got to have the CPA. <laughs> right, right. I believe they are they are required to be licensed even in the UK. But I'll tell you, the mobile barbershop, that's probably got some legs. That's interesting. I mean, I was in a parking lot yesterday, and I saw a gas truck pull up and fill up somebody's tank, you know, mobile gas. So gas while you're at work. I forget the name of the outfit, but I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, if they come out and do an oil change, that'd be even neater, but... Yeah, no, definitely good stuff. You know, so good stuff. All right. Well, we're up against our first wait break. Want to remind you, you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is out there, the soul of enterprise, where there's show notes and previews to upcoming shows. And also pay attention to the calendar. It is, I think, fully up to date. So if you want to see where Ron and, or and or uh, I will be in the coming months and come out and say hello to some of our live events, we'd love to have you. So Click over to the calendar page, but right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
And we are free riding on Friday here, and we're talking about uh, Marxism, the minimum wage, and I forget what the other M was, Ron. I know we had we so we already talked about minimum wage. Uh, there's Marxism, and then there's one more M that we put in the title of the show that we'll have to get to. We're trying to give everybody a little teaser of Free Rider Friday. So instead of just naming the in the show notes the upcoming show after uh, the month, which is what we've done previously, we're trying to give give a little teaser of what's what's happening. So we've dealt with minimum wage. I, I, I you know, I said I had something from Landsberg while we were on the break, and right. I will get to that. I promise, because Landsberg was a guest on the show. But uh, this one is in keeping with my story from Kim Kardashian and. And that is that in, in Arizona, Governor Doug Ducey signed legislation, this is, let's see, two weeks ago on Wednesday, uh, to uh, get r- rid of ocup- the occupational licensure uh, when you tra- transfer in some states. So all licenses, when you move to Arizona, are fully transferable into the state. Yeah. So this is obviously fantastic, and I think pretty smart on Arizona's part. It's already a state that people are moving to, um, so it makes a, a ton of sense for them to do this. And he, he says, quote, you don't lose your skills simply because you packed up a U-Haul truck and made this decision to move to Arizona. Of course, there were people who were against this. Because oh, my God, yes. What if their standards are not the same as our standards, and, oh, the public is going to freak out, and there's going to be you know, florists who – put the wrong color rose in the bunch, Ron, and they could be devastating. Didn't have the 10,000 hours of required education. Yeah. So that's a huge issue, Ed. I mean, I, you just, the CPA profession has fought for mobility. It's called, you know, and to treat that's universal now, right? um, I believe there's a couple of states. I think that Illinois is a holdout, something weird about, but, but basically we got it and all, they've got it in all jurisdictions. But I'll tell you, they had to fight, fight really hard for it and they mobilized and everything. And then you watch these other occupations do it and they don't get the support. They don't, you know, everybody says, oh, well, no, we can't have that. I mean, you know, CPAs need it, but you know, we're different. So give me a break. I don't buy it. Now that's a smart move. That's a smart move. Yeah, that move. is a smart move. And th- this is similar to what I guess they did in Nevada, which was the, was it Nevada or no, New Mexico. It was New Mexico. New Mexico. Oh, New okay. Mexico, where, where the governor said that as long as you sign a paper saying, I know that this person is not a professional, I don't care. I want to use them anyway. Right. You're allowed to, to do that. But I think we reported that in, uh, at, the, at the previous show. So I like both of those approaches. I, I mean, I actually prefer the, the, the New Mexican approach a little bit better because I think right. there's a little bit more freedom across the board from that. And in other words, people don't have to get licenses at all in order to practice. Just have to say, listen, hey, I'm not licensed. Right. Not licensed. Are you okay with that? Yeah, yep. yeah. That that's one of the ideas for drugs too. FDA FDA approved, non FDA approved, right? I mean, yeah. I think yep. Mary talks about that in her book. Even. Um, all right. Well, speaking of Arizona, um, actually, this has nothing to do with Arizona, so I don't know why I said that. But, <laughs> but speaking of uh, technology, uh, there's a startup out here, Ed, called Voyage, and uh, it's in Silicon Valley, and they're testing on autonomous vehicles in retirement communities. And the big one is the villages, uh, which is in Florida population of 125,000. I think it's the biggest retirement village in the country. And they've got a fleet of autonomous cars there. And they say, you know, the environment is simpler for these cars to navigate. Speed limits are lower. The layouts are less complex. Um, there's strong demand for mobility in retirement communities, as you can imagine. And uh, there's a, uh, 
<laughs> because these places are located in good weather, you're not going to have snow and some of the other weather challenges that you would have like on in, in cities. Um, so Voyage is now operating six prototype AVs in the village uh, with safety drivers. They still have drivers on board just to monitor performance, see how that's going. And they're, they're also testing one in a community in San Jose. Um, but here's what they did that I found really interesting. They granted a 0.5% stake in the firm to the owners of the two communities at Alliance Incentives. Hmm. They haven't worked out the pricing model yet, but they're favoring a monthly subscription, basically, that covers a certain amount of trips. Right. Um, and, um, you know, it's really interesting because The Economist ends and says, you know, um, some some Americans in retirement may already be living in the future. In other words, the, this technology may be adopted there first, um, you know, more than yeah. mainstream. Um uh, just a side article that kind of relates is in Japan, they're, they're uh, building more robotics to care for the elderly as their country ages. They got one of the fastest aging populations in the world. It's amazing what percent is going to be over a hundred and you know above 65 and all of that. And they're, they're really helping that these robots will be able to, uh, you know, do some chores for the elderly and, maybe even talk to them in limited ways. So they're investing heavily in that. So just kind of interesting. You're seeing this tech move into, yeah. you know, you know the I, was chuckling, I was just chuckling the, the, the uh, Alexa silver thing they did on Saturday oh, night live. Yes. You know, yes. We have a, it has an mm-hmm mode. For, oh, for right. Right. Yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> That was, that was, that was a really good, good. That was uh, hysterical. Yeah. All right. So let's, let me get to the Landsberg one here. Okay, good. Guest on the show, what, three years ago? I can't believe it. It I I know. Absolutely amazing. But he has his, his blog, the big questions, and he's still, he's still blogging some, hasn't fallen off like, like like many bloggers, including you and me in, in, on, uh, uh, Verisage, right? Right, right. uh, So he's still, he's still it throws a good one out occasionally. This one, he, he's talking about his trip that he took from Lubbock to Rochester. He lives in Rochester, mm-hmm. and it was a return home flight. Took 36 hours because of maintenance issues on three different planes, right? And as only Landsberg can, this got him to wonder is maybe maybe American is being too cautious, right? Too cautious in their safety concerns. So here's this back of the envelope <laughs> conversation about this he just said look i could be wrong here i I totally haven't worked this out but it's a standard figure to say that every uh, a human life is worth 10 million dollars right that's pretty universally accepted right um so in other words that people are willing to pay about one dollar to avoid a one in 10 million chance of death right right So that's that's the that's what that means. It's, it's said the other way, right? If if one human life is worth ten million dollars, then you're statistically we're willing to pay one dollar to avoid a one in ten million chance of death. Okay, right. So then you take that, and he's like, well, and then the other thing I noticed on this trip 
is that when they were offering in the, you know, they were trying to bump people off the aircraft or bribe people off the air- aircraft, a la Julian Simon, right, to, to do this reverse auction, he noticed that the number uh, happens to be around $600. $600, there seemed to be, that seems to be the break point where people are like, yep, they will take it. We'll go, yep. Right, so they'll, they'll go. So, all right, so now, okay, well, now we've, got, we've got our two numbers. We've got the, what's the value of the flight to an individual? And we also have what's the what's they're willing to to risk facing death. So you take ten million and you divide by six hundred, so that's seventeen thousand, right? So his his thinking is is that if the fly rate is if there's a less than, yeah, if there's there's a if there's a less than one in a hundred one in seventeen thousand chance that the plane will go down. Right then, then they ought to continue the maintenance. But if they think that it's more than one in one hundred and seventeen thousand chance, then they should take. They should fly. They should take off. They, they should fly. <laughs> so he's got, he's got it down. So he goes. I don't know how all of you feel about this, <laughs> but he goes. But that's the math <laughs> behind yeah, it. That's and, like his post. Only, only Landsberg, right? Oh, that's like his post about would you be justified in killing you know one person to save a billion people from a migraine? Right. Oh right? yeah. And, 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 oh, you should have seen the comments on that. Oh, geez, did people go ballistic? <laughs> what if it was you? What if it was your daughter? You know, it's like that's not my point. <clears throat> <laughs> so. People even Ed, get offended at the ten million dollar number. Oh right, I know. How can you put a number on a human life? That's disgusting. Because, you know. because it, and it, it, it's 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 a little repulsive to me. I'll yeah. I'll say that it's it it makes me cringe a little bit. But it's probably right. It's it it's reality. I mean, it's it's based yeah. on court cases and actuarial yeah. stuff, and also you know it's really well accepted. I've I've read that in so many different places. So yeah. Oh, that's so there great. you go. That's great. I just wonder, though, that, you know, the government, I think, factors into this, too. And they're worried about the government, obviously, you know. That's why oh, yeah, so that's, that's true. And, that's true. And, yeah, he, I don't think he no, he doesn't talk about that at all. He's just just, you know, they're just doing the trying to get as apples to apples as he possibly can. Anyway, he he thinks that American Airlines is is a little too safety conscious for his taste. <laughs> you know, it brings up the, the Boeing issue is just did that. It's still so fascinating, you know, the 737 MAX and um, the issues with it. And, you know, a lot of people think it's going to be grounded for longer than we think or longer than they thought. Um, well, and, and so this, I know we've got only a minute and a half left here before the segment, but let me bring this up. I was talking to to uh, Howard Hansen, who's been a guest on on the show. And, you know, we, we Howard is my, my mentor. We were talking about this very thing this morning. And we, we were mentioning, is is there a culture at Boeing, is it is it acceptable within the culture of Boeing for somebody to say, you know what, we really screwed this up. In fact, this plane should never fly again. All of them should not fly. That's one possible possibility, right? It's mm-hmm. a possibility. Mm-hmm. And the question that we were discussing is: is is there a, enough of uh, of a of a culture of truth at Boeing? for someone to make that call to say that out loud and for a decision to be made that would even allow that to happen. Right. Right. That's it's no, it's a great question. And, you know, Rabbi Lappin's been talking about this on a couple of his shows and just the stock price hasn't moved dead. 
know, Boeing hasn't really taken a hit. I mean, they've bounced back and, and, you know, the investors seem to be saying, ah, this is no big deal. It's only a, you know, third of their revenue or whatever is commercial. The other is defense or whatever that ratio is, you know, from government contracts. And, you know, the first call that the CEO made after this whole crisis hit was to Donald Trump. Really? Yeah. What's that tell you? Can you say cronyism? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it's interesting. The stock hasn't stock price hasn't really been affected by this, and investors don't seem to be too paranoid about it. I don't know if they have to ground the plane permanently, but um, oh, I'm not, I'm, just, I'm just saying, it, 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 yeah, it, that has it, to be, be adoption on the it, table, right? Right, right. But they have to. They, they did not handle this like the Tylenol people handled that no. crisis, and they didn't make that crisis. Boeing made this one. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. All right. Um, Good stuff, Ed. Anyway, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, you can do so. Send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We love getting your emails. Love getting your uh, iTunes uh, ratings out there. We've gotten a couple more since we spoke last, but no written comments. So if you want us to read it on the air, please write us a comment. Check out our show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. Now we want to hear from our sponsors. future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're doing Free Rider Friday for the month of April. And, Ed, I forgot the M's, but uh, <laughs> I, I used to stump audiences in my early days of public speaking with the following question. Who was the Steve Jobs? Actually, back then, it probably was Bill Gates. 
Who is the Bill Gates of the accounting profession? Who is the Bill Gates of the accounting profession? Yeah, and you yeah. just get silence, right? And and it, the answer used to really bug people, but it's Henry Block. Oh yeah, the founder of H and R Block. Now, if you went back far enough, you could make a very strong case that some of the founders of some of the flagship firms like Price, Waterhouse, and you know Arthur Pete, Anderson, Pete, Pete, Marek, Mitchell, those guys, Anderson, yeah, that they were entrepreneurs. But I tell you, I don't think they achieved the level of wealth that uh, Mr. Block did. And of course, he passed away on Tuesday in his home in Kansas City. He was ninety-six. Wow. And uh, at its peak, H&R Block was preparing one in every six United States tax returns. And they were one of the er- early pioneers of franchising. Yeah. And that's a really interesting story. So he was born in Kansas City in 1922. He was the middle son. His dad was a lawyer. His mother was a homemaker who read philosophy, philosophy avidly. Um, her, her ancestors were among the first pioneers to settle in Kansas and he graduated from the University of Michigan in 44. And uh, he stayed in Kansas basically his whole life. And um, after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, he did enlist in the Army Air Forces, served as a B-17 navigator. He flew 31 combat missions over Germany, three over Berlin. And he won the Air Medal and three Oak Leaf Clusters. The Army later sent him to Harvard to study statistics. They were big on hiring statisticians and economists. That's how Milton Friedman ended up working for the War Department, you know, figuring out the trajectory of bombs and other right, right, you know, right. statistical uh, calculations. He, he read some Harvard economist paper about the importance of small business for the post-war American economy after he got out of the military. And he decided, hey, we're going to start a bookkeeping firm. He said, I'd only taken one semester of accounting in college. I, I just hated it, he said. Uh, so he borrowed five grand from his great aunt. And with his older brother, Leon, they established the United Business Company, um, which later, of course, became H&R Block. And they did bookkeeping. It was a bookkeeping firm. And in 1954, they had 12 employees. They did some tax prep, but it brought in so little revenue that they decided to discontinue it. The Kansas City Star newspaper where they advertised, the salesman talked him into it. He said, no, no, don't don't cancel the ad business. The IRS is stopping their free tax preparation service in, in Kansas here, and they also stopped it in New York. So why don't you run an advertisement? And they ran an advertisement, and the headline read, taxes, five bucks. And the first day it ran in January of 55, there was a stampede to the office. Wow. And they, they were just doing a ton of business. They brought in more than $20,000 that tax season. That's about 200 grand today's dollars. Um, nearly a third of what the United Business had been earning. So they changed their name. They went, went, then went to New York, opened seven offices. A couple of accountants there wanted to buy the practice. They couldn't afford the asking price. They set up a royalty deal with them. And that became the model for the H&R Block franchises. And then they spread out. Eventually, now they have 12,000 offices worldwide. They do $3.1 billion in revenue as of fiscal 2018. They prepare 23 million tax returns worldwide. Um, In 1962, they went public. This is interesting, uh, at about four bucks a share, which is about 34 bucks today. And on the day he died, the stock was trading at $26. 
So, and of course, they could not be considered an accounting firm. Number one, he wasn't an accountant, right? He said he was he not an accountant, a CPA. So, therefore, but if they were an accounting firm, would they? They'd be in the top four, right? They'd be in the big four, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah they're they're up there with that that level yeah. of uh, interesting. Of um, yeah, and and just you know, they've had some rocky years. the The financial crisis years were bad for them. The mortgage thing, and and of course, new competitors, and of course, the online. And so they had to pivot, you know, they've got their software, right? The H&R Block mm-hmm. software. Um, but uh, he survived by two daughters, 12 grandchildren, and 19 great-grandchildren. Oh, God bless him. <laughs> so uh, good job, Henry Block. Um, yeah, I've always admired him. I mean, I know people used to, you know, laugh and joke. and But I tell you, he did a great service for a lot of people. Well, on to, to that end, Ron, I, I've got something here from ProPublica, um, and this is this is a story we we talked about on our bonus episode uh, last week. But I wanted to mention on this, uh, and and that is that Congress has banned the government from offering online tax filing. Right, right, yes, right, and. You know, last week when I talked about this, I was firmly entrenched on the, well, this is clearly just cronyism. This is clearly just regulatory capture. But I have to, in thinking about it further, I'm starting to perhaps back away from that thought a little bit. I'm I'm, I'm not quite sure it would be the, the, the greatest idea for Congress to offer free online tax filing for people for the government to do so. Cause this is kind of what I said, but maybe for different. Yeah. Reasons. What, why, why? Um, because I, I, I think it's, it, it would, it would potentially destroy innovation. Right. Um, in a, in a sense right now, there's this thought around, you know, TurboTax and, and H and R block software and all of that, that what they're looking to do is trim your tax bill as, as best they possibly can. Right. Mm-hmm. And what having the government might do would might crowd out that. And so therefore there's innovation around it is my mm-hmm. point. There's mm-hmm. innovation around, you know, creativity to try to find what, you know, are the best ways to make the deductions, all of, all of this stuff. If the government crowded that out, there clearly would not be any of that. What's the, what's the motivation for the you know, U S government tax prep software to, to try to trim your tax bill? Right, to find every possible deduction, to interview you with all the right questions and all that. Yeah, that. Right. Yeah, that's one of my issues with it, too. This is the, you know, the imprimatur of the IRS or the government, that people aren't going to challenge that. Now, what I can't get a straight answer on this, and maybe some of our listeners will know this, is does this ban the IRS from delivering a pro forma to a taxpayer and saying, Here's what we got. Here's right. what we got on you. Right. Yes or no. And I think I would have less of a problem with that because then they could because then then the taxpayer would be free to take it wherever they wanted. They could go to right, right. A, their accountant or an HR block or TurboTax or whatever, right? But the government would say, "Here's what we got. You tell us if this is correct." Right. Yeah, you know, and I worry about that too. But that people again will not challenge IRS. Oh, okay, right. know, that's what they say. I owe. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it would bar that, Ed, but I, I, the IRS doesn't have the capability of doing it. I think it's a technology issue. They just don't have the the technical 
capability of pushing out, you know, millions of pro forma tax returns based on the data they have. I mean, they have the data, no doubt about it, but it's right. a matter of getting that data out and merging it with, format. you know, yeah. what a nightmare from a technological standpoint. I mean, every computer system they've ever installed has been, you know, a disaster and over budget and didn't work. And yeah. I, I don't know. I just, but, but I wouldn't think there's anything in the law that I know of that would pre- prevent them from doing that. They would right. need budget from Congress, though, for technology to do it. Right. I think. To do it. Well, yeah. Interesting. So, and then um, the, the last thing I just want to quick mention on the taxes, because I have this as well, is the, there is a, are in the, the Atlantic of all places, why Americans don't cheat on their taxes. Mm-hmm. And we have um, among the highest what's called VCR, the voluntary compliance rate Ratio, in the world. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's incredible. Our voluntary compliance rate hovers between 81 and 84%. Yep. Right? There are other countries that can't even calculate it. That's how bad it right. is. Right. right. <laughs> I think Italy's won. <laughs> well, you no, probably- they actually, there in this story, there was Italy, 62%. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. That, right. That, that could not do it. But there was one other that they mentioned. Okay. So this is an ex prime minister of, of Israel said evasion of high taxes is a God given right. Right. Okay. It was Greece that uh, in this story was found by the International Monetary Fund to be un- unable to calculate their, their VCR. Uh, but here's what the article says three reasons. I thought this was very interesting coming from the Atlantic. Three reasons why. Americans pay their taxes. Number one, we have the higher tax, we have lower tax rates, right? I was like, huh, okay. Um, Illegal shadow uh, economies are among the lowest here in the States. Right. Right. So barter, that kind of stuff, cash off the books, right? Um, The third one is probably the one that is the most interesting, right? Uh, That... And I think this is really interesting. People are more inclined or or less inclined to fudge if they think that others aren't paying their fair share of taxes. Hmm. Meaning, people think we're paying their, most people think people are paying their fair share. Yep. Yep. Sure. Huh. Yeah. No, that's really, I mean, yeah, we are a voluntary compliance system. So, you know, the, um, that personal fudge factor that Dan Ariely talks about, you know, we're willing to cheat, but it's just up to a point where it doesn't affect our image of ourselves. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. It's a personal fudge factor. The, the IRS is intimately familiar, you know, interested in that, what that personal fudge factor is, you know, and yeah, it's, it's, we have incredible compliance for sure. So they, 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 of course, then speculate that this is, this is worrisome because, you know, faith in government has been dropping for decades. Why are Americans still paying? And, and you know, the bo- bottom line is, is faith in government has nothing to do with f- f- the belief that every people, that people are paying their fair share of taxes. And what is it now? 50, over 50% of the population needs uh, some type of assistance, whether it's tax software or accountants, EAs, whatever, to help them with the, um, to help them with their taxes. So, you know, those, those folks are probably going to do a, a fairly good job. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's probably part of it as well. I bet we have more professional preparers per capita than maybe some of these other countries. That would be an interesting stat to know. 
Yeah, just to see. Yeah, you know. our tax prep business compared to theirs, you know. Uh, yep. <laughs> which would be H&R Block in a lot of countries. I mean, they do file a lot of returns around the world. Right, right. But 88% of Americans think that it's unacceptable to cheat on your taxes. Yeah. Cheat. Now, I think there's a difference between two between cheating and, and finding the best possible deductions too. Right. You know, avoidance, tax avoidance as opposed to fraud. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think people are pretty savvy and understand that distinction. Yeah. So, <laughs> the way, so. interesting stuff. All right. All right. Well, we're up against our last break. Want to remind you, you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to AskTSOE, the website, of course, The Soul of Enterprise, in addition to the show notes. And I also mentioned the calendar. Ron mentioned the archive page where you can go back and listen to all 250 plus of our shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're doing Free Rider Friday for the month of April. And, Ed, we got an email from one of our listeners and soon-to-be guest, I believe in June. Is that right? Um, I'll have to look that up. And you go, and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll find okay, that look one. Look that, that up is. for me. Mark Stiving, who is Ph.D., Chief Pricing Educator at Impact Pricing. He's also the author of Impact Pricing, Your Blueprint for Driving Profits, and host of the Impact Pricing Podcast. And uh, I met Mark at Professional Pricing Society uh, years and years ago, and then I know you met him when we were doing a workshop together. I think he came by to say hi to us, and um, he sent this email. He said, your TSOE episode on the death of the timesheet was very thought-provoking. I'm 99% with you on the idea of killing hourly billing and could be with you on killing timesheets, except I don't know how to answer one question. How does a company determine willingness to to accept. So that's WTA. So keep mm-hmm. that in mind, willingness to accept. In every negotiation, the buyer has a willingness to pay WTP. 
and the seller has a WTA, right? Willingness to accept. Mm-hmm. This is the easiest to understand in products. If a seller has an ongoing business, can buy a product for hundred bucks, their WTA is almost certainly some number above a hundred bucks. Usually they have a margin floor of say 20%, so it'd be 120 bucks. If the buyer's willingness to pay is 300, there will likely be a transaction, hopefully, at a price significantly higher than 120. However, if the buyer's WP is less than 120, no transaction will occur. In accounting or similar service type businesses, how do you know your WTA, your willingness to accept? It seems you need an estimate of time, even though you would pay that, that accountant's salary, even if you didn't land that job. If you need to estimate time, wouldn't having timesheets to track actual versus estimated in after-action reviews be helpful? As you point out, they are probably not accurate, but is there a better way? I'm looking forward to your answer. Cheers, Mark. Oh, yeah. What's your answer, Ed? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, for, first of all, <laughs> it's the, the old story of, well, we're in Los Angeles, but I have a map of New York, so at least it's a map. Right. The map. Let's. Uh, it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. Uh, now, I will say that the willingness to accept for me has always been based on and, and something that that we've talked about. We're we're opposed to timesheets in arrears, but I don't think anyone, either of us, has ever said that it would be a bad idea for you to do your timesheets in advance, or in other words, to set to do if you have an effort estimate in in the future based on your understanding of the work. Right. Yep. And if you want to do a quick allocation and understand what you think that is, because as we've said numerous times on this, this show before, prices are not derived from cost. This is the cost plus accounting, but prices justify the future expenditure of cost. Right. Right. So our willingness to accept this is if we, because we believe our future, our, our, our future cost is going to be less. Now we know that there's going to be times when we mess that up. And the question becomes, does it matter? And the answer that I've always come up with is no, because if you're doing if you're if you're doing pricing well, any mistakes that you make on a few of them will be far overshadowed by the, your ability to, to to get more from a price perspective because you've been so focused on value to the customer up front, right? right? So we'll we'll cover that. And the, I guess the the the, the, the like, short answer is I don't care, right? Right. I don't I don't care um, because I'm not I'm not even looking at it that way. My willingness to accept is going to be based on, yeah, perhaps what I think it's going to be. But I'm not going to I'm not going to worry about timesheets to do that retrospectively. Right. And, and, and I yeah, I like what you said about, you know, do obviously do the timesheet in advance. And that is sort of a way of analyzing your or thinking at least about your opportunity cost. Right. right. As we've yeah, discussed a million times, you have to look at opportunity costs before you make a decision to do it after you make a decision is not to analyze opportunity costs, it's to analyze sunk costs. Right. So I think that, that th- those are good points. I, I just wanted to say, I don't think this is a pricing question. Right. And I know that might sound weird, but, you know, we always say you can't value price the wrong customer. And I think this is a strategy positioning question. And, and I want to illustrate it with an example. Our colleague, Daryl Golem in San Diego, a sole proprietor CPA. I met Daryl in 96 in Lake Tahoe, 1996. And his minimum price, and I think this is my first book somewhere that's out of print, 
at the time was $800. He wouldn't accept a client. So that was his WTA, right? Willing says $800. If you didn't, if you weren't willing, that was it. Today, Ed, it's 10 grand. And that willing to accept that has not changed because he's done timesheets or anything else. It's changed because he's changed the mix of his services, what he offers to his customer, and the value that he that he brings to the table. So your willingness to accept, I think, it, it lies not in your pricing so much as in your strategy and your positioning. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're Apple, if you're if you're if you're uh, Ruth's Chris, as we always like to say, your willingness to accept is going to be much different than McDonald's, even though your cost might not be that great, that much greater, you know, percentage wise. So I think it's a strategy and positioning question. Not a, yep. not so much a pricing question. I think the strategy and the positioning drive the pricing. Yep, I agree with that. I agree with and, that. And obviously, if you're niched, this is much easier, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also, I think, why uh, professional firms have to have a minimum price because your minimum price is your willingness to accept. Now, you can have you know, minimum prices for different services. You could have one for audit, tax, business returns, what, you know, different types of services. But, but I think you need to have a minimum price, kind of like what Daryl did, you know, from 800 now to 10. Might even be higher now. might be 12. Um, O'Byrne and Kennedy do the same thing. They have a minimum price. They just won't bring anybody on below us, below a certain threshold. And that's it. You, just, yep. you know, because I see so many firms that say, oh, no, no. Well, yeah, our minimum price is 10. But we, we can do this at five because we can be more efficient. Good luck with that. It's not going to happen. It's not, and that's where they run into mistakes. I think so. I think it's a customer selection strategy positioning question more than a pricing question. Fair enough. Good. All right, Ron. We got about ninety seconds left. So you want to? I got something to squeeze in. Uh, I did, Ed, but uh, I, I don't have time to do it justice. Um, Harley Davidson's having problems selling, uh, you know, to younger people. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a baby broom brand, and they're really kind of struggling with that. So that's going to be really interesting to keep an eye on. Keep us keep what happens with Harley Davidson. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yep. they're trying to crack, crack foreign markets or whatever to expand because you know their their uh, core customers are dying off. <laughs> I hate to say it, but that's the problem. Yeah, that's a problem. All right. Last thing I'll mention before we we get on out of here is just to loop in the Marxist is there was a great story in fee on on Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and AOC update here. Uh, And I just love the title of this. It says your your income is determined by the scarcity of, of your contribution, not the value of your worth, not the not the value of human worth. And, um, just a just a, a great thought out there, and I think that uh, you know once again debunking this Marxist labor theory of value that's that's rearing its ugly head cannot happen quick enough, quickly enough. It just continues to hang around. So, Ed, what's on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we are interviewing our guest Tyler Cowan, economists from I believe the uh, uh, George Mason University and the Mercatus Center, as I recall. Uh, Looking forward to him. He does a great podcast, so it'll be great to turn the tables on him. It will be. All right. I'll see you in 167 hours.
This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes on what we discussed today. Also, send us an email at, to ask tsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.